the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning again. I hope you all are doing well. It's so nice to see you and to know that many of you are joining online. Uh, For those of you who have been around uh, Grace Church of the Bay Area, you know that this is around the time when we hit November that uh, we would be announcing our upcoming Christmas service and our upcoming uh, Christmas party. Unfortunately, this year we won't be having uh, the Christmas party. We will definitely still be doing the Christmas service, which will be the Sunday before Christmas Day. Uh, Feel free to invite your friends to join us online or join us in person, and uh, I will be sharing uh, the gospel during that time. Well, as for our text this morning, as a believer, as a Christian, one of the most fundamental yet most complicated realities of the Christian life is our union with Christ. Complicated to really grasp for many ways because the, the physical reality, the biological union is hard to understand. And even the spiritual union in the light of the fact that we are such sinners and He is a holy God. And yet the Scriptures are very clear that we are created in Him. We are crucified with Him. We are seated with Him. We are part of His body. We are one flesh with Him. We are found in Him. And last week, we saw that we are unified in His resurrection. And despite being in union with Him, we often do not have unity with Him. That seems like a small lexical issue, but it's a big issue. In other words, though we are united with Him in all the ways that I've just listed, we don't always behave as He desires. There is lacking a unity in will and desire. In other words, we sin. We pursue things that are not for His glory, not in service of others, not in service of the world. We are selfish. We are proud. That doesn't change who we are in Christ. That doesn't change the fact that our resurrection is with Him, is united with Him. It doesn't change the fact that we are created in Him, seated with Him, granted all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places as He is our brother in some respects. But it does change the fact that we are to be united in Him in purpose and in action. This difference, this dichotomy is perhaps no more clearly seen in the born-again Christian who practices immorality. We're looking at the reality of the believer's physical body. And in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the final verses, we're looking at a sermon series called God's Body, God's Choice, which means as the redeemed, our body that we have the liberty to use it as we please, we know that God has redeemed it and He will resurrect it one day and it is His body and we are to use it as He pleases. Today, specifically, we are looking at unity and union. 
Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 18, will be our passage for the morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 18, and we find ourselves looking at Paul's words right in the middle of addressing sexual immorality. He writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he, God, says, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. This is a temptation for many people. This is a temptation for people who think they would never be tempted by it or never be tempted by it again. This is a reality that is not removed because you're married. It's not removed because you're committed to singleness. It's not removed because you have no desire or interest in the opposite sex. But it is our union with Christ that is a good reminder, provides several reminders of why or even how we are to avoid sexual immorality when tempted. And so this morning I'm going to give you a little bit of a wordy outline, but it's six facts. Six facts about our union with Christ to remember when tempted to immorality. Six facts about our union with Christ to remember when tempted to immorality. The first fact about our union with Christ that helps us combat sexual immorality is the divine reality. The divine reality. Again, the first half of verse 15, he asks this rhetorical question. The answer is expecting an affirmative, positive answer. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Yes, we do. We know that. This is a fitting segue from the truths that Paul taught us last week regarding our present physical earthly bodies and our future resurrection bodies. And that is a, a bit of a, a misnomer, you understand, because the very truth of our resurrected bodies is that they will be earthly and they will be physical and they will be here forever. But you understand what I mean. Our today bodies. Specifically, that there's a connection between this body today and the resurrection body in the future. More specifically, we are to live in light of the resurrection by living holy lives today. We saw that last week. Remember, the theme of everything we're looking at is God's body, God's choice. And here, Paul gives us yet another indication of how true this is by saying that we are members of Jesus Christ. With the word members in the Greek, Paul is not talking about an individual that belongs to an organization, not someone who just belongs to a club. This isn't just participation. The word member is speaking of a limb, a body part. Each and every Christian is part of the spiritual body of Christ. You've heard it before that we say that the church is not an organization, it's an organism. And we are all parts of that organism, the body of Christ. Now, we will see when we get to chapter 12 in a couple years. No, I'm just kidding. It won't be that long. But when we get to chapter 12, 
this metaphor is elaborated upon. You, many of you are familiar with this chapter where the church is compared to the physical human body. Same principle, same idea, same metaphor that he's using briefly here. The truth flows, this truth flows directly out of the theology of verse 14 that we saw last week that speaks of the oneness of Christ's resurrection and our resurrections. Verse 14 said, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. And we talked about last week about how this is not two separate, just, oh, He was resurrected, so we know we'll be resurrected. But no, they are, they are together. They are part of one another. The power of His resurrection is active in our lives because we are members of the living God. And to go full circle, He is the living God because He was resurrected. Our belonging to Christ is not partial. It is complete. And we saw this in the distinction between soul and body or spirit and body last week. That is, it's not just our souls and spirits that belong to God as evidenced by the bodily resurrection, the fact that we will live in eternity in physical bodies and not just in spirit. And this complete union references our physical bodies as well. Every aspect of our physical bodies and all that it is involved in belongs to God. So it's not just the, the blood, you see. It's not just the molecules. It's, it's not just the, the virus or the expelling of the virus or whatever it is. Anything that we use our physical bodies for in a second-degree connection belongs to the Lord. So what do you mean by that? I mean our time. I mean our talents. I mean our emotions. All of that. And as such, the human body is to be an instrument of the Lord for the Lord's glory. Unlike your relationship with your boss or your kids, it's not just 9 to 5 when you're at work or with your kids 5 to 9 when you're back home. We are with the Lord and can do all things and are to do all things for His glory. We should do all things for His glory 24-7 and wherever you are. Even the seemingly small and mundane things, which is why Paul will later say, do all things the glory of God. What's before that? Whether you eat or drink, even the sipping of that water, even the eating of that snack or meal. And the point is everything, not just the big things, not just the church attendance, not just the raising of the children, but even how you eat and sleep, use the bathroom, all of those little things, how you drive, how you wake up, how you dress. Of course, those are the small things. And it goes on from there. With that in mind, we understand that our bodies are to be used in the best way, not only for Christ, but also in our relationship with others based on our relationship with Christ and how He wants us to treat those relationships, not just Christians, but unbelievers as well. To put it another way, our union with Christ affects not only our relationships to God, but also our bodily relationships with others. And this truth is why Paul is coming down so hard on sexual immorality. How you use your body with another body. 
Christian or not. And so we have to understand the divine reality. That however you use your body, and especially if you are going to use it for sexually immoral purposes, you are using a limb of Jesus Christ to do that, to accomplish that. And that first foundational fact is so important to understand, to remember, when you're tempted to do anything that is unfit for a body redeemed and connected to Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our second fact about our union with Christ to remember when tempted to immorality. If the divine reality is that we are connected to Jesus Christ, the second fact is the destructive replacement. The destructive replacement. And you'll see that he doesn't just say, this is bad. If you do this, this is bad. No. As we just looked at the divine reality of our union with Christ. But when we don't live out that union properly, when our lives don't reflect that divine union, it is because we are neglecting, ignoring, and replacing that relationship. And here, Paul addresses one of the worst, if not the worst, humanly possible replacements possible. Second part of verse 15. You're members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Let's look at these words carefully. He doesn't say misuse. He says make members of. Understanding the first principle of union with Christ, this principle is very clear. As members of the body of Christ, you wouldn't take that member, your physical body, and join it with a prostitute because by doing so, you make yourself a member of that prostitute. Note the emphasis here. He doesn't say, shall I then take my body and make it a member of a prostitute? No, he says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. I get that. You say, I get it. He just said that. Why repeat it? Because he's emphasizing the grossness of your sin and the beauty of what you are. When you engage in sexual immorality, and in this case, prostitution, you are taking that part of Christ's body, that member of Christ, away from him. You are tearing it off. You are severing it and attaching it, attaching it to a prostitute. It's a picture of not just misusing or borrowing for something bad. It's a picture of taking from one and willingly, voluntarily giving to another what belongs to Christ. And it highlights the utter incompatibility of union with Christ and union with the immoral. What's more, this act is a denial that your body is for the Lord. It's not even saying it's for her or for him. You're saying it's fully for you. It deprives the Lord of what belongs to him. It deprives the Lord of what belongs to him. Not like a whiny child saying, hey, that's mine. He died for it. 
He redeemed you for it. He didn't just save you from, he saved you to. On the one hand, to be fully accurate, on the one hand, prostitutes in Paul's day were very different than what we would consider a prostitute today. They were often well-educated, intellectual, and artistic, and used that in their vocation. The way they entertained was not merely by engaging in sexual vices, but also through stimulating and intellectual conversation, poetry, song, dance, storytelling. Uh, You've seen this depicted in television and movies that show you what the Roman Empire was like. They're sitting there giggling and drinking wine and talking it up. And so these women fulfilled the pleasure of both the mind and the body. There was, in fact, a school for prostitutes in Corinth. Not a school that prostitutes can attend, a school to train women to be prostitutes because there was so much more involved than just their bodies. The gross but common view or cliche back then was that a wife was wonderful and suitable for having children and watching over the man's daily affairs. But for pleasure and fun, we have the prostitutes. And understand that there were, as I mentioned last week, there were even temple prostitutes, specifically in Corinth at the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. You guys remember that from your studies in high school? And so there were prostitutes there that were part of the worship. But on the other hand, while prostitution has changed from that day, it is still sinful and it appeals to the base desires of man. And today, prostitution is no longer just for men, but for all genders, and they come in all genders and distortions of gender. Today, prostitutes are unnecessary to engage in illicit behavior, as there are plenty of normal, law-abiding, good citizens who would happily seek these things out. And so even though Paul is addressing a specific type of person, And immorality, he is also addressing a general type of behavior, any and all sexual immorality. The context, of course, on a very broad broad level, we can use all of these points in this passage to guard us against the temptation or resist the temptation to flee the temptation, to use Paul's words later on, of of, of any, any temptation of sexual immorality, but you got to understand that there's the, the, the physical joining of a member of the body of Christ to another person involves you joining with another person. But please understand it is all the same thing and doesn't need to involve prostitution to be immoral or to create the act of removing Christ and joining to another. One way to look at it is that Paul is not so much speaking of an individual, that person, there on the street. He is talking about an entire categorization or an entire confederate of evil, a force that is anti-God, not just in beliefs, but is actively at war against Him. You understand this, and, and maybe we've been uh, distracted by 
social movements and politics, but on a spiritual level, you understand that the world we live in, the world in which we are called to flesh out our membership in Christ's body is not neutral. It is not neutral. It is depraved. It is evil. We are at war. Not against movements, not against politicians. This is a battlefield. And every single Christian and non-Christian, whether they believe it or not, is a soldier, a combatant. Every, every sermon you hear, every relationship that you have, every conversation you have with anyone has the power to draw an individual closer to heaven or closer to hell. Everyone. Every article you read in your newsfeed, every headline, every meme. How do you respond? in all of these things. It doesn't matter if it's a prostitute in a pagan temple, a prostitute trying to make a living, or an average American, average American, and you understand, I am not exaggerating here, who simply does not believe sex is to be limited to the marriage relationship. Take a step back from the trees, the specifics, and back to the forest, the overview. Paul asks the question and answers it with the strongest of negatives. May it never be. In our modern American English, should I say Californian English, I really can't think of an equivalent. But just understand that it is the strongest, it is the strongest of negatives. And you've seen him Uh, Write this in in other places in the epistles. As I alluded to, this kind of immoral behavior is the norm these days. It can be easy to think that it's just one night. It's just a simple act. I didn't hurt anyone. It wasn't a crime. The other party was complicit and in full agreement. He came on to me. She was flirting with me. It's no big deal. You couldn't be more wrong. May it never be. And that leads us to our third fact, the distinctive relationship. The distinctive relationship. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Here's a Californianism. Brutal. Brutal, Paul. The first part, yes, I get it, it's bad, and then he quotes Genesis 2.24. Brutal. But that's how wrong it is. Let me explain. It is Genesis 2.24 that Paul quotes here. It is one of the most fundamental and important verses that teach us about the sanctity and uniqueness of marriage. Not sex, marriage. 
right there in the beginning. He gets this after seeing Eve come out of Adam, creating Eve from a rib of Adam, and then he says this. It is the very foundation of marriage, biblical marriage. We often know it as the leave and cleave verse because the beginning, which Paul doesn't quote here, says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is the reason a man shall leave his parents and be joined to his wife? What is the reason he mentions here? That very order of the creation of mankind. This was the plan. This was the purpose of union between a male and a female. And what's important in our context in 1 Corinthians is what God says about marital union. In Genesis 2.24, the reference is to legitimate biblical marriage. And that's what this verse is known for. It speaks of the wonderful, special bond and God-ordained and God-honoring and God-blessed union between a husband and his wife. This same union, this same union, which Paul now uses to describe sexually immoral acts with another person. That's how significant the sin is. What we're talking about here is sex. In God's design, the way it's supposed to be, sexual union is a real and enduring bond that is for marriage only. In other words, with your spouse only. Not someone who isn't your spouse. Not even someone as you're preparing for your wedding, is going to be your spouse in a few hours. It's not for you. Your spouse, period. That's it. It's not just about disobedience. It's not just about sin. It's about a union, in this case with a prostitute, that is akin to marriage. Listen carefully, friends. The joining that he talks about between a man and a, and a prostitute or any two unmarried people having relations implies that they are wedded together, though there are no wedding vows. In God's eyes, there is no such thing as casual sex. Even in the marriage, as we get to 1 Corinthians 7, we will see that it's a big deal. There's no such thing as casual sex. All such behavior has enduring consequences, even when there's a mutual agreement that there's no intention for any attachment. Because in God's eyes, there is. We see it right here. All the reasons that God gave us Genesis 2.24 was all positive. It emphasizes the beautiful and real bond that is created in marriage by God. It is used in Malachi 2 to stress the importance of the marriage bond by prohibiting divorce. And here, it is used to tell us the depth of the grossness of immorality. It is not insignificant. Don't be fooled. Be very clear. The two shall become one flesh is not just a euphemism for sex. 
This is speaking of the profound and special bond that a man has with his wife in the biblically ordained marriage bed. Paul is saying when you give that to someone else, when you practice premarital or extramarital sex, you're giving that special bond to someone else. There is no such thing as just sex within or without marriage. When it comes to the physical body, we must have a high view of it as an entity, but also the behavior we exhibit with the body. Why? Because it belongs to the Lord. And when, when it comes to fornication, faithfulness and purity are what we are to pursue. And so let me give you a fourth fact about our union with Christ, the dependent resemblance, the dependent resemblance. But, on the other hand, verse 17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There is more than just union or being united with Christ. There is also unity, oneness, harmony. I spoke about this when we, when we began this morning. As Christians, we have joined ourselves to the Lord, or rather, He has joined Himself to us. In so doing, Paul says here, we become one spirit with Him. This is the vital spiritual union with the Lord which results in unity, meaning we are now controlled by the Lord. He and us, He and we, now have the same goal, the same desire, the same will, the same mind, and you have the ability to do it with His strength. Our spirit is joined with Christ's spirit. And this kind of unity that we have with Jesus Christ in spirit is the most intimate type of union that can exist while still maintaining our own personal identities. He, His, and us, ours as individuals. It doesn't get more intimate. It doesn't get better than that. So why would you take that and create a union with someone else that is in conflict with this holy partnership, this holy wedlock with you and Christ. When we join ourselves with another in an immoral union, we create a division between our bodies with which we commit the indecent act and our spirit, which belongs to Christ and desires His will. As believers, we should submit to the will of God and allow His Spirit to become the command center for our bodies. This would then rule out any contact with prostitutes or the like because every molecule of our bodies is to be given for service for our Lord. In other words, we resemble Him, Christ-likeness, and we depend on Him dependent resemblance. But you know, and we praise God for this, in His way beyond human logic, in His perfect wisdom and sovereignty, we are not puppets. We are not robots. We have the freedom to serve Him and choose to serve Him in everything we do 
But unfortunately, that gives us the opportunity to choose to do the opposite. We must remember our resemblance and dependence upon Him. So what do we do? We're tempted. We've been tempted and given in to temptation. We feel guilty. We feel helpless, hopeless, faithless. You can dwell on the past all you want. But what I'm concerned about, what Paul's concerned about, is what you are doing now and what you're going to do from here on out. And so let's look at the fifth fact, the desired response. The desired response. We've seen the divine reality, the destructive replacement, distinctive relationship, dependent resemblance. Finally, or fifthly, we have six, the desired response. Very simple. Flee. Flee immorality, he says in verse 18. There are sins that the Bible tells us we need to take a stand on, that we are to stand firm, we are to fight, we are to overcome. Elsewhere and in other situations, we are to stand firm, resist, fight. But it comes when it comes to this sin, run, flee. And in this specific context, flee from her. Not once, not twice, not when the temptation is beyond what you can bear. But the tense in the Greek says continually, all the time. Flee as a habit. Flee without delay. Flee right now. Flee the temptation. Don't ignore the temptation. Don't ignore the steps. And then when you're there in the room, then, oh, I need to flee now. I, I don't, I don't want to sound condescending or have any doubts about your spiritual ability, but you know as well as I, if you're that point, to that point, it's too late. You were to flee a long time ago before you even got in the car. Beware that you don't see this as something to file away for a difficult, especially tempting time. This is a habit, like all Christian habit, that must be produced now. Little things that you can do now could fall under flee. Look away, turn away, power off, walk out, run away. Whatever the action is that will be fleeing that temptation. You have to understand that there isn't anything that justifies it or is worth muscling through it. I know this is affecting my thought life, but it's just, you know, if I just, no. Nothing is worth it. I don't care how exorbitant the ticket price was. Walk out of the theater. Turn off the TV. Cancel your Netflix. Keep your computer at work. End the relationship. Move out. Change jobs. Whatever needs to be done, do it. Don't be fooled by the English here. Paul is calling 
for a drastic measure of flight. Run in such a way that half the people who see it will be shocked and the other half will laugh at how ridiculous you look. Run. Run. What are you willing to do to honor the Lord to avoid an unholy union? Not just to get away from an existing situation, but to prevent one in the future. And there's an extra interesting tidbit that Paul adds here to address the uniqueness of this sin. And we find that in our sixth and final fact, the determinate repercussion. The determinate repercussion. Every other sin, he says, that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So I've read this before. I've tried to look at other sins. I don't get it. Pastor, what does this mean? I don't know. Kidding, not kidding. I don't know because Paul doesn't elaborate on it. No theologian knows. No commentator knows. He doesn't expand on what he means here, but there are few truths that may help us consider what he may be referring to here. First, we know that immorality comes from a desire for personal gratification. Well, isn't that anger too? Isn't that theft, greed? Yes, but it uses one's own body in a unique way as an instrument for that sin. I don't think I need to explain the biology here. That, that defiling is unique. And that joining in immorality is uniquely body defiling. Stealing doesn't defile your hands that you stole with. Anger doesn't defile your tongue. But this defiles your physical body. We're not just talking about disease. Disease or not, you know what I'm saying. And to go back to Paul's uses of Genesis, usage of Genesis 2.24, being a drunkard, being an alcoholic, as we saw him list earlier, does not make you one with alcohol. Greed does not make you one with money. But this makes you one with another. Because of this, there's a lasting emotional and spiritual stain on the body that is left from fornication. Though you can and have, many of you, repent and turn away from immorality, like you can from anger or pride, the act of immorality joins you in a way that those other sins do not. And when we talk about belonging to God and in the next passage about our bodies being the temple of God, the joining with another in sin defiles the body in a way that no other sin can. Think about it. If I said, hey, you hear about that big embezzling scheme? 
that member of our church was part of that, you'd be like, oh, I can't believe it. That's horrible. Hey, did you see that, how he was yelling at his wife? He just flew off the hand. He's like, yeah, that's, ah, that's really bad. That's really bad. But if I told you about a situation like this, you might not say it to be polite, but you would even use unique terminologies of shock like, that's gross. That's disgusting. You could hear about someone stealing and still have no problem shaking his hand physically. You brought this other one, something, you just don't even want to touch that person. It is unique. It's unique to the body, your own body. Six facts about our union with Christ when tempted to immorality. The divine reality, the destructive replacement, the distinctive relationship, the dependent resemblance, the desired response, and the determinate repercussion. Many of you are actively battling these sins or other sins that may lead to such behavior. We need to take this seriously and excel still more. We need to repent and seek forgiveness, flee and take drastic measures. But before we close, I want to take a bit of time to address three different groups of people that may think this passage, because of the lack of temptation in their lives for this kind of sin, may think this is not for them. And I get as a Christian, you say maybe you've overcome it, maybe you think, you know, you, you understand that this is a big problem in our world and in the church. But this is not ju- just not for you. And I believe if that's your thinking, you will fall into one of these three groups of people. The first is the people who are heading toward this sin but don't know it. The second is the people who don't think this is such a big deal, sexual immorality. At least certain acts are not a problem. Or thirdly, those that don't think this will ever happen to them. First, the people who are heading toward this sin but don't know it. The problem is that we often put ourselves in compromising situations, even in our own home, based on what we watch on TV, look on the Internet, YouTube. We slowly feed our minds with impure thoughts and pictures. Maybe it's really not your fault. You're just at work. You're just on Zoom. And someone's dressed in a way that is not appropriate to you. You didn't ask for that. You didn't invite that. It just happens. You can still stop thoughts. You don't have to keep picturing it after the camera's off. You you don't have to say, oh, it's silly to put a post-it note over her picture. You still have control over those types of things, what happens after. And these little steps, they develop into a desire that grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And even if you don't think you will get to that point, you are in sin now, if you're thinking those thoughts. You say, well, what is that point anyway? 
it's a moving target because it's going to get worse and worse as you go along, as you get deeper into the sin, because that's how sin works. That's how our minds work. That's how our fleshly desires work. One thing satisfies your sinful pleasures, and then you, it's not enough until you go further. You guys get this on even neutral things. Like the fact when you forced yourself to drink coffee in finals week in college, you put a ton of cream and sugar, and now you drink it black, and you think it's tasty. We get used to things, and we need the harder stuff. You say, well, eh, it's just this, this one girl at my work, but, you know, at least I don't look at anything online yet. And then you do. I say, well, you know, at least I just looked at some free stuff. I didn't pay for it. Some people actually pay for it. God gave them that money. They're using it to pay for stuff online. And then it's, well, I just paid, I paid a little bit. I'm still paying my bills. And then it keeps on and going on and on and further and further. And it's not just pictures and fake people. It's engaging with real people and the workplace and flirting and chat rooms Beware of small compromises. Even, even decisions that you make that are unrelated can lead to this. Back when I was the shepherd of a Bible study at the, at, on the UCLA campus, there was a, a thing they did, not, not, the, not the church or the Bible study, but the school called the Dormal. It was like a dress-up uh, dance, formal dinner, not dinner, but like a, like a, like a prom before people lived in the dorms and gave people a chance to go out and get off campus or I think they had to stay on campus. But, you know, they dress up and get a date. And, and I remember talking to a guy and, you know, naturally a lot of people were bringing other people from the Bible study. And I talked to this guy looking all snazzy, dressed up. We'll call him Frankie. It's not his name, but we'll call him that. I said, Frankie, you go to Dormal? He looks really sad. He's like, no. I said, what? what happened? He's like, well, I got stood up. But I'm, I guess it's kind of good that I got stood up because the girl I asked, and I know I shouldn't have done this, was not a believer, is not a believer. Uh, you know, and if you, if you think I'm a little fire and brimstone now, I was much worse when I was younger and in seminary. So in front of comforting, I confronted him. Graciously, at least that's what my memory tells me. I said, Frankie, I'm, I'm glad she didn't show up. Yeah, so am I. I said, why are you glad? It's like, well, I just, you know, I should only date Christians. I said, ah, let me ask you something, Frankie. Not a Christian, right? Right. What if she did show up and she had a blast? And afterwards, it's getting late. And she said, Frankie, you want to come to my room and spend the night? I said, would you have? Probably. Little things we, we do just because we 
want to be accepted or little compromises. We think it's not that big a deal because everyone does it. I was just talking in, to the men in men's group about this show. Five of the guys have watched this show. It, why do I need to turn it off? It's a whole other sermon right there. But maybe you don't think you, you fall into this because you know that your same-sex attraction is wrong and you're a Christian, and so you would never, ever do that. So no problem. I'll never fall into sexual immorality because my attraction is same-sex and I know how bad that is in God's eyes, so I would never act on it. And then you meet someone. says, yeah, I I get your struggle. Thanks for sharing because I'm a Christian too. And you start talking, keeping each other accountable, helping each other look to the Lord and one thing leads to another. Moment of weakness. And there you go. This actually happened years ago. Two men repented of homosexuality. Christian men, godly men, so successful in the Lord that they decided to start a ministry to help other young Christians who struggle with this. Two men started traveling together, seminars at churches, meeting, hotel room after hotel room. I don't think I need to go on. You know what happened. In the midst of ministry. The second group of people is people who don't think this is a big deal. We must understand all that we have said about God's glory and your body being His. There's a strong pressure from the world. And we must remember that what the world or society deems okay is not always okay. In fact, if you wanted to use the rule that what society says is okay is not okay, you'll be right more often than you are wrong. Even, listen carefully here, even what other Christians may say is okay is often not okay. You see, our world today is concerned about safe sex. That's it. That's their standard. And even if you don't have safe sex, they get mad at you. They say you're dumb, you're inconsiderate. They want safe sex. That's their standard of morality. Okay? Think of everything we've just said, and the world's standard of morality is as long as you're safe. It's okay. Nothing I'm saying here is shocking you guys, I'm sure. If you've been alive, if you know, for the past whenever. It's safe, it's consensual, at least in this country. Then it's okay. We've got to be careful. Right? It's not just peer pressure anymore. It's just the, the norm, right? Peer pressure, as I picture it, is... A few guys, you know, in elementary school who are doing something they know is wrong. Hey, smoke this cigarette. It's not the norm. Come on, do it. Be cool. This is the norm. You don't even need peer pressure in that sense because it's just what it is. I mean, do you really have unbelieving friends that feel the need to encourage you 
to engage in immorality, they wouldn't even think about it because they're assuming you already are. It is a big deal. And you know deep down, if you have to cover whatever you are doing by saying it's not a big deal, it's because you already know it's a big deal. Being goofy with your kids, all that kind of stuff aside, let me give you a litmus test. Would you look at that in front of me? If I could pull out that image that you're thinking about, that fictional character, that person on TV or a sister in Christ, would you want to display it here for us? Would you like to just put a big picture of the body part that you're zooming in on with your pupils for us to see zoomed in at the same place? It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Because it's about your thought life too. I don't care if you're a eunuch and say it is physically impossible for me to do these things. It's still a big deal what you're doing now. Thirdly, those that don't think this will ever happen to them happily married or not married and have no desire to be, Perfect, perfectly happy being single, no physical attraction to anyone of any gender, just this is the way the Lord's wired you, don't want to get married, don't see the point, don't struggle with this at all. Happily married, biblical bedroom scene. Don't need it. Not going to happen. Then comes a rough patch. New baby. Tired. Physical impossibilities. Laid off from work. COVID. Husband's home all the time. Working from home. Learn to rely on him. More than you ever have since your marriage. Vaccine comes. He goes back to work. Long hours. Need to catch up for the past seven, eight months. Everyone is suddenly gone, and you've gotten used to the attention. You're not getting the attention you want from your spouse that you once got from your spouse. Maybe it's not COVID. Maybe it's just you, he doesn't treat you the way that he treated you in your first few months of marriage, back when you were dating, buying you nice dinners, nice flowers, things like that. But there's that one coworker. He sure is nice, isn't he? so kind and you mess up at work and you're expecting to be teased because that's what your husband does, but instead he picks up those papers and say, eh, it happens to all of us. In other words, he treats you the way that you wish your husband treated you. Or she treats you the way you wish your wife treated you. Or how they used to treat you. My friends, beware of expectations in marriage. Beware of comparing to other people. Same thing for you who are single and maybe don't even have a desire to be married or intimate with anyone. Maybe it's because you've never dated and so you've just lost that desire. And for the first time in your life, For the first time in your 20, 30, 40, 50 years of life, 
someone tells you how attractive you are. For the first time in your life, someone makes you feel like a real man or a real woman. And you still have no desire for physical gratification, but you are drawn by the emotional. And so you'll do what is necessary to keep that. Wow, Roger, all these scenarios, you have a really good imagination. Nope, I have a good memory. I've seen men and women in the church fall over and over again to sexual immorality. I have known of a missionary from a solid church and seminary, if you know what I mean, because of immorality, hiring a hitman to kill his wife. I've known of a pastor, a husband, a dad, a discipler, evangelist of my wife doing things in the church bathroom with his male intern. Preachers, evangelists, seminary professors having affairs, including a man who all of us students and even the other pastors and elders and professors went to because he excelled at practicing, as far as we thought, and teaching what the Bible teaches about how to be the best family man in God's eyes. And his son found the emails and the separate phone he had purchased for her. I am not trying to say that this will happen. I'm trying to say be smarter than thinking this won't happen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute, a coworker, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, just someone I met? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You understand how weak we are, especially in this area. I pray that we would be a people who are pure, not just for purity's sake. That we are pure, not just for a happy marriage sake, not just for whatever. That we are pure because of you, because of the unity we are, because of our very existence as a member of the body of Christ. I pray for those who are struggling with the sins. I pray that you would develop in them such a high view of you, that you would develop in them such a bitter hatred 
of this sin that they can literally taste it. Give us all a passion for holiness and purity and a clear theological understanding of what our physical bodies are or what they are in reality, spiritually, to you, in you, with you, for you. Help us to be a church that judges not but comforts, confronts, seeks and gives accountability, helps one another in these areas. Help us to be a church that is wise enough, open enough that people are willing to share their struggles with one or some of us. Help us to be a people who are discerning, calling sin, sin, and gray areas, gray areas, but wise in what we do and even wiser in what we recommend. I pray that you would be with those who are struggling or have recently struggled with these sins in various degrees. May you help them to repent. May you help them to come back to you. May you help their spouses, their children, their parents, their friends to find a renewed hope in their marriages, in their children, in their parents, to seek your mercy, to seek your grace, to seek your strength. That you would fix those marriages, Lord. And both parties would excel still more. Lord, help us. What more can we say? Help us in these areas. And just as the sin gets worse and worse, may our conviction be greater and greater over the seemingly smaller and smaller things. We pray these things in Jesus' name.